Shall we begin? Today we have a couple that are so passionate about sharing their adventures together, they ride two up even in the dirt. We also have a rider skills segment with Brett Tax, and on today's episode, Brett's going to show us how to shorten our braking distance regardless of whether you have ABS or not. My name's Jim Martin, this is Adventure Rider Radio, stay with us, we got a good one for you. Oh, shout. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Witt. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Tina Marie Austin. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Beth and Kevin Young have been riding together for 19 years, and over that time they moved from street to touring and now on to adventure bikes. They ride one bike, two up, and both Kevin and Beth are advocates for sharing adventures together. And although they ride long distances, their adventures are generally short and close to home, which is another example that adventure can be found anywhere. They share their adventures on social media, hoping to inspire other couples to share the adventure with the one they love. My name's Beth Young, and I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah, and I am a uh, sales manager at a television station. Is that what you wanted? (laughs) (laughs) My name is Kevin Young, uh, Salt Lake City, and we are two up together. 
Beth and Kevin, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. We're extremely excited to be here. Now, you guys have been riding for, what, 19 years? Yes, sir. 19 years this August. So 19 years you guys have been riding two, two up together, right? That's been that way right from the start. Yes. Yes. And you're riding a lot now. Like, you know, you're not, um, how, how often would you ride? Every chance we get. <laughs> we, we, we spend most weekends. We don't have uh, children at home. We've just got the two cats. So we, we spend a, uh, the weekends riding. We went today. We do um, all our vacation is generally around the riding. And then um, our wedding anniversary is coming up here, August 7th. And we normally take a big trip around then and uh, do things. Last year, we went up to a BAMP in Jasper National on the motorcycle. So, um, yeah, we... It's been our third trip to yeah, Canada. Yeah, fourth. Fourth. Fourth trip, yeah. So we we every chance we get, it's it's our vacation and it's what we do. And it's uh, it's we look forward to spending that time together in the saddle. You just mentioned cats in there, and I think you've got a travel tip for listeners about pets. Own a cat. <laughs> <laughs> because we talked about this. What, what is it about the cat that makes traveling easy? Well, they're, they're both actually rescues. So it, it, they came into our lives, and I think there's a good reason for that. It's just, you know, you, we can leave them. I hope there are no cat people that are like, oh, my gosh, you're leaving your cats for three days. But... <laughs> We, we can just really say, okay, we have some time. Let's get on the bike and go. And we can, you know, fill their water and their food up. And they're, they're great cats. Uh, they get along pretty much. And we can leave them for three days, maybe four if we're pushing it. And I hope no one out there thinks that's wrong. They're always very happy when we get home and very well fed. And so uh, I, I, I think, think that's just a great, great way to own pets right. when you're traveling a lot. There's a lot of people who would say their cat leaves them for three days, I'm sure. Yes, Cats yes, they do. And of course, yes. these aren't the tips you normally hear on Adventure Ride Radio, so I thought that was a good one. <laughs> I would grab that from you while we were talking about it. But really where I was going with this is you guys have been riding for 19 years. You're still riding two up. And I say still because I think that's a question that, Beth, you probably run into all the time. And I want to address that right off the bat. Um, people are saying, why don't you ride your own bike? Wow. Yeah. And, and Jim, I am asked that all the time. Mm -hmm. Women, men, I think some men come up and ask Kevin, you know, whisper in his ear, why doesn't she own a bike? And uh, there's been a lot of talk about it uh, between Kevin and I over the years. And probably three years ago, I thought about it uh, pretty seriously. Um, in our discussions, uh, you know, we talked about how he would be, he would feel like he would have to ride behind me and actually kind of keep an eye on me. And I just felt that would impede our travel. Um, and quite frankly, I enjoy riding behind him. I, you know, sitting behind him, I think it's really uh, helped us in our communication. You know, we're not on separate bikes. I know you can communicate with Senna and th things of that nature, but, you know, sitting on a bike, I've learned his body language. I think he's learned mine. Um, it's really just brought us a lot closer. I like that feeling it, as long as he's okay with it. If he ever says to me, you know what, I'm getting tired of you sitting on the back. And sometimes I wonder, you know, like, Hey, would he just like to kind of scoot off with a group of guys or have me on my own bike? And I can go with a group of female riders and he could go with a group of male riders, but it has never, and I've asked him, but it's just never come up uh, in that way. So I, I think it's, 
because he doesn't mind. And um, as a matter of fact, I think he looks at it as more of a challenge. I mean, he is dragging around. He likes to say 250 pounds. Okay, Jim, I do not weigh 250. I weigh like 120 for everyone out there, all our friends that think that never met me, but think I might weigh 250 pounds. But, you know, he is dragging around additional weight. I got to make it sound harder, Jim. So I tell everyone, you know, hey, you're not hauling around this 250 pounds on the back like I, I am. Yeah, yeah. So. But it's, you know, I, I think he looks at that as a challenge, especially now that we've ridden with other people over the past year that, look, we can keep up and I'm actually carrying additional weight and usually up front, you know, so. Um, and you see your position, though, as, as something more than just somebody sitting on the back of a bike. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I mean, definitely uh, support. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of the co-pilot. So. She does. She does a lot of work back there. And I, I think we we've actually um, I worked on a video the other day. We haven't really posted on anything yet. But I mean, she she's a motivation and she'll talk me through rough sections when we're off road and hey, you can do it. And she reminds me to breathe and reminds me to pull over and, and take a break and because she'll hear me breathing labored. And it's funny because I just push myself when we do this. And then she'll say, why don't you pull over and take a break? And as soon as we pull the bike over and I take the helmet off, I realize I'm lightheaded and really tired. <laughs> so um, we're a good team. It's a, it's a, it's a great, um, I call it the team, team building that we do. And um, I really, yeah, I can't really imagine when we're, when I'm actually on the bike um, by myself, the bike feels weird. I don't um, because it's so much different without her on there and the way the bike feels off road and even on road. It's 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 strange. I'm so used to her being in that position. So it, if she um, got her own bike, it would be a, uh, a learning, a new learning experience for both of us, essentially, because it would be a, a, a new challenge just trying to learn how to ride that bike by myself. Just it's definitely more intimate when you're riding with somebody who's right behind you or right in front of you. Does that play into it? <laughs> yes. I, well, I, I think the you know the we got communication systems pretty early on because the 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 tapping and um, you know we have light signals like if I hit you on the knee that means I got to go to the restroom or whatever and we got the communication systems. What we found is that we do pr- probably have our better conversations on the motorcycle because we're not distracted by the iPad or the TV or, you know, it's, it's, you, you don't have those distractions. We're writing and communicate, you know, Hey, do you see this? Do you see that? And, um, we, we talk, we keep, um, the cinnas on and that we don't, we don't do the voice. They're just on, we talk the whole time. So if we're on a trip, a long trip, we got a four or 500 mile day. We're talking that four or 500 miles. We don't put music on or anything else. So it's, it is, it is good for the marriage and the closeness of the relationship. Well, and as I always say, Jim, you can't argue for long when you're that close on a motorcycle. You know, it's just a little too uncomfortable. So you can argue uh, on a motorcycle, but not for long. Yeah, not for long. <laughs> not for long. Cause you, you know, you really do have to communicate. I, I told Kevin a couple of weeks ago, went on a pretty technical ride and, I said, you know, I, I get this feeling that I'm not really comfortable until I feel like you have got your legs under you. It's almost like I trust you maybe 90%. But then once I feel in his 
physical way he's handling the bike that it's a hundred percent now that he feels like, okay, we've been off road for a couple miles. I'm starting to get uh, into the groove. Then I start feeling like I can trust him more. And so then I'm able to ride a little more competently. You know, I do get that question a lot. Do I just sit back there? What do I do? And I mean, today we went for a really short ride because we knew this was coming up and I'm going out of town. So I really wanted to ride before I left. And, um, Actually, I, I stand a lot. I mean, I do stand a lot. It's a different type of standing. I, I think I use different muscles and than the, the driver would use, but I do stand a lot. And so, you know, by the end of the day, my, my legs are pretty spent. My core is pretty spent. And uh, but it's it's different on the back. You know, I, I feel at times I'm as Kevin says, I can be the angel in his you know, on his shoulder, the devil in his ear or vice versa, however that little saying goes, because I at times I go, hey, how about if we go up that road or um, and he'll be like, oh, I don't know. You She's know, a oh. bad influence, Jim. <laughs> really bad influence. Because <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be like, you want to go up that road? Yes. Do you do you see the rocks on that road that are supposed to be a road? That's usually the yeah. other way around where you're saying, well, I think we're going to go up here. And, and she should be saying, I don't know about that. I'm on the back of here. Yeah, and, and sometimes he he'll say that, and I will say, "Oh, you know what? Um, I'd be happy to get off and walk just a short distance to get there." But I think that's part of the relationship building, you know, kind of that trust that, "Hey, I think we can make it up there," or "Hey, Kevin, I don't know if I should be on the back." And usually, I think he's a little more cautious um, as we ride more off road. I do feel like he's. Um, taking more and more risk, um, which is fine with me as long as I feel comfortable doing it. Like uh, today, I think there were a couple like – She doesn't want me to say the word sand. She no, would much I'd rather do. not know. I'd rather not know. <laughs> you mean you don't like it because of bikes all over the place? Yeah, it gets squirrely. I can feel the back slipping out. Well, now, Jim, you're familiar. You ride off-road and you get in something soft and that back starts to wiggle around. She's planted on the rear. The that back end wiggles a little bit more. Um, so when we're going to that, it's sort of accentuated. So she definitely knows without me saying that we're in soft stuff. And then obviously, she sees it on the side. Quite frankly, I don't know. How she does. I could never do what she does because she's staring at my back. She has no idea what's coming because I'm up on the pegs. But um, when she feels it get squirrely all she has to do is look down to the right or left and she'll see why um and then she just doesn't know how much of that we've got to go that's all she does so that she'll be real quiet that she'll say are we out of it yet you know it's the same with me i don't think i can sit on the back either like that because um i'd be too worried about what's coming up and i guess you have to trust the person in front of you it's it's interesting though beth you said about how you can feel that he hasn't really got in the groove he hasn't really got in uh into it yet and, and i think all of us as riders know that feeling there's times where you go out and yeah you're riding i mean you're doing fine and everything but you're not in the groove and there's other times you go out and it feels perfect everything is just mm-hmm. as smooth as it can get Strong. It's strong. You know, what is that? It, yeah. it, I call it my sea legs. And I say, well, I haven't got my sea legs yet. So it's, it's one of the things I I try to do pretty early on, whether it's go faster and push myself a little bit out of my comfort zone to find the comfort zone. And um, 
but she can tell, you know, if you're not on top of it and you're a little shaky going through the off road and you're, you know, cause you tend to be a little jerky in your movements when you're not really solid or confident about what you're doing. And, um, I, I could understand how she feels it cause you're, you're, you're not committing to things. You're and, ba- you bounce off the pegs. Yeah. And a couple of times, like in the first couple of miles, like every now and then you kind of bounce your knees up and down. So I know you're literally, literally trying to find the sea legs. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> off-road legs, we probably ought to call it. But it's, I say, we're, I'm trying to find my sea legs. And you guys are riding a lot of dirt, a lot of off-road stuff. We, we do, we, we, when we got the GS, we always had road bikes. And when we, we moved to Utah, um, back in 2012 and we were only, I was only in Utah probably three days and we took a trip to Moab and I had a big, uh, 1600 GTL and we got to Moab and I started seeing all those red roads and, uh, the dirt and, I'm like, I, I, I got to get another bike. This just isn't. And I had just bought that GTL prior to moving here. And I'm like, this just, this isn't going to work. We got to, I got to get back in this stuff. So, um, and as we've, you know, we were just dumb enough to get on the GS or she was, she was dumb enough to get behind me and I was dumb enough to take her. And we, I just headed off into the dirt with no clue. I grew up on bikes like that and just tackled the Utah desert, which is a pretty, um, harsh environment. And we just started doing that. And the more that we've done, the more we like it. It's, it's really the, the asphalt doesn't seem this safe. And, and we see more, I think off road, it's prettier. It smells better. It's, um, you know, there's risk, but they're calculated risk. And, and they're a little bit more in our control then we feel like when we're traveling on asphalt, we're not giving up. I mean, certainly, um, like I mentioned last year, we went to uh, Banff and, and we'll certainly do um, more trips like that in the future. But uh, the dirt has sort of become um, our oasis um, where we can get up in the mountains because in, in Utah, it doesn't take very long. You can get um, 45 minutes an hour away and you don't have cell phone service for the entire day and you're at, you know, 9,000 feet, 9,500 feet in, uh, like today, 58 degrees or when it's 90 in the valley or in, in when it's cool in the spring, you're out in the West desert and it's in the seventies and, um, and you're, you're just, you're out in the middle of no man's land, but it's a, it's a beautiful environment either way. Is it the GS? I assume that's the 1200 you're talking about. Is it is it the GS that's really got you guys into sort of um, being obsessed with motorcycling? I I don't know. I think... Like, I mean, has it, it changed, I guess is what I'm asking. Has it changed? Because you said you guys were doing road riding before and, right. and you're riding two up, but now it, it seems like you're really passionate about it now. I'm just wondering, has that changed mm. anywhere in there? Well, I, I think we were always passionate about it. We just, as we grew older, Jim, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we started off with mainly sport bikes in the beginning. So, you know, we were, we were young and, you know, me riding fast, right? Always wanted to go fast. But as we, then we got a tour, a uh, couple tours, it, but the GS really has, I, I feel like we almost just keep taking it to the next level. Uh, don't you? Well, I think I, mean, I think the thing with the 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 whole dual sport 
um, motorcycle is you can have access to things that you normally don't. And I think, you know, it, you feel, um, at least I think both, but you feel like a bit of an explorer Mm -hmm. when you're Mm -hmm. off road, you feel like you're hitting these places. No one's ever been, or few have been to before. And you don't see anybody else for, you know, there's places we go, we don't see anyone for the entire day. And there's just something sort of special about that, that that's a lot different than when you're on the asphalt. It's just, it's, it's, um, maybe it really isn't, but it seems like more of an adventure. Well, there's roads and trails. I mean, so obviously other people have been these places we go, but I think there's something about heading into a place where you, you sort of have to earn it, you know, like, it's not like, I mean, anybody can ride the road really, but there's something about when you get into the dirt or you get into something tough and where you're having to work the bike and have to use some skills. I, th- I think that's sort of it, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. When you, when you get to the, it's not even really the place that you're quote going to, it's just along the way is the reward. You know, it's, stopping and you have that special view, right? You know, you stop and you kind of see and you kind of go, wow, that was just a great part of that road that, you know, we just made up, you know, this expert part of the BDR or something like that. That's, that's exciting. I I do think it's the thrill. I I really like the, the, I guess Kevin said it earlier about the calculated risk. It seems that it's just a little more riskier and much more thrilling and when we're on the road, it feels like you just want to go faster because now it's you're on the slab, right? And so I don't know. Maybe well, it's I think you get older. That's you all you can do, though, isn't more, it? That when you're when you're yeah, on the road, I mean, that's it. If exactly. You want to push your, if you want to push your comfort zone, which is what really is is you know that's adventure, pushing your comfort zone. Yeah. Then you're going to have to go faster. You're going to have to corner sharper. You're going to have to corner faster, and that all has you know accelerated risk. Well, I think the, 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 the sense of accomplishment when you climb a, a trail that's full of big loose rocks and um, what we call baby heads here. And I know last weekend we were, that we were on 30 miles of um, pretty rocky, um, talky roads. Um, I've heard some of your guests refer to, refer to it as bull dust, like in Australia, but it's pretty nasty stuff. And when you get to the top of one of these hills and you've got this great vista over these natural lakes and the, and the peaks and the, you went to mountains of Utah, there is a sense of accomplishment and, and you're also huffing and puffing and at least the, <laughs> I'm breathing hard and you need to take a minute and and uh, gather yourself back together, catch catch a catch a second wind, and you work hard. I think for those accomplishments too. That's something on the asphalt you really don't work that hard to to reach those places. So um, there there is a, a a sense of accomplishment like you like you achieved a goal uh, that I like. That ride you just talked about that was uh, an expert level uh, section of the BDR. We thought it was, and we were on part of it, and then we made it. We made it worse. So we, 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 <laughs> we made it worse we, by riding. Yeah, it, you mean? Yeah, we we, we decided. We, apparently, we <laughs> thought we, because one of the guys we were in a group said, um, "Yeah, I did this before." We we were completely off the reservation on the BDR, and we actually the, the section that was BDR 
would have been a lot easier than what we ended up choosing <laughs> to do. So it was it was just nasty. But um, we'll do it again, just not anytime soon. In the next, I don't know next, why next, I yeah, yeah. to go again. Yeah, it was. Uh, but but it was. It was it was fun. It was one of those rides, Jim. When you're in the middle of it, you're not really sure that you're having a lot of fun. But <laughs> but when you're done, you're you're like everyone gave each other a high five and said, "Hey, we survived." Okay, we, and we were, did not eat that pine tree. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't yeah. crash into that tree like we initially were going to. So yes. <laughs> Now, as far as you mentioned, Kevin, that um, you just sort of jumped on the bike and you just counted on the fact that you'd ridden dirt bikes when you were young. Have you done any training? Did you guys go for any off-road training since you've been since you've bought your GS? We really didn't, and there's really we looked into it. There's really not like training for there's there's training. There's a lot of different places that do it, um, but there's really not a um, a uh, two-up school. And you know, there was no natural fear because I grew up on. Hadakas and little Hondas and, and, you know, but <laughs> in Tennessee, you know, not in Utah where there's sand and talc it's things that I have never experienced in my life. And, you know, we've sort of learned everything we've learned through, um, trial and error. Trial and, error. and, and, and luckily we haven't gotten seriously injured along the way, but we've, we, you know, it's always calculated. We don't, I mean, I, I'm very cognizant she's back there, so I'm not going to do anything really risky. Um, and we've we've learned um, to select our gear a little bit more carefully, and then items on the bike. Um, we changed out rear pegs for a grippier peg, um, so she instead of the rubber pegs that are on the GS and, and the boots she wears and things to accommodate the off-road riding, and then. We started hitting as we got more advanced. We started hitting sections of, you know, things like Valley of the Gods. One day we got a little fast into a section and caught a little air, and she giggled. And I'm like, you know, I I think we could hit that faster <laughs> and catch a little bit more air. And she goes, okay. So we went back and did it again. And, and she again. and she's like, I'm like, I think we could do that a little bit faster. So. Um, a lot of a lot of what we do now is really because it makes her laugh and I enjoy it. So we keep going back and doing it. It's almost like, you know, practicing um, like maybe a motocross rider where a lot of the riding we do is on familiar trails where we just try to go a little bit faster and jump a little bit higher and and then tackle those things that you're fearful of, like um, – sand and rocks and, you know, things that, that look really gnarly and hard. I think, you know, it's, there's, it's a calculated risk and we have not always been successful in all these things, but, um, it's just the only way you really learn that, um, experiences from doing it. Right. So, um, the experience with the two of us doing it is, is the school of hard knocks essentially has taught us to do what we're doing. If there was two up training, I think we would we would go. And sometimes I have thought, Jim, that training might benefit. I'm sure it would. I, I shouldn't say I think it would, but I'm sure it would benefit him. Like you say, you don't see a lot of people riding two up dirt and you're, and you're having to work together. Has this sort of built your relationship? Have you guys got closer by doing this? Because you have to work a lot harder riding a bike in dirt or in off-road sections with two people, both of you do, than you would just cruising on the road. Well, I think... 
I think, you know, going back, um, we, we, you know, it's sort of funny the the off road, um, riding is relatively new to the marriage, but the motorcycling isn't, but you know, there was a point in our marriage where we hit a, a off road trail that was a little rocky and, um, divorce papers had been filed. And, um, we, at the time we lived in North Carolina, you have to wait, uh, a year. There's a waiting period, cooling off period before it's final. And, you know, thankfully we reconciled within six months or so, but, you know, we moved, um, after that pretty quickly to another state. Um, we moved to Indiana and one of the things we were trying to find, more things to do together. So I was a big golfer. She wasn't. So I would head off on the weekends and play golf and she was at home and do her thing. And so we, we switched out to Ducati for a sport tour and we started traveling. Now we weren't really doing like the big overnights necessarily, but we were doing a couple of hundred mile days or hundred mile days or whatever. We were getting on it and, and riding through upper Michigan and so forth. And, um, what we found is that lack of distraction of life and being on that together and having those conversations through the headsets and so forth and creating memories too. Yeah. It was a lot about creating memories and, and getting to know each other better. Um, and then that sort of morphed into doing the overnighters and spending more time together and then doing week long trips and two week long trips and, you know, Hey, let's, let's go 5,000 mile trip on the motorcycle and, it really became um, the motorcycle became a a uh, sort of a uh, a tool um, to rebuild the marriage um, because it, it it may sound funny but it was a common passion something we both enjoyed and actually that that traveling together and you know as we all ride motorcycles know everything's you see everything better and you smell everything better but. We're creating those memories with each other that are a lot more positive than some things we had in the past. And, you know, and that's really when, you know, a lot of stuff changed. That's when we started, my gosh, Jim, the pictures we've got because she's a shutterbug. And we just we've built our marriage essentially around um, motorcycling. motorcycling. Yeah. How, how do you mean? Elaborate more of that. You, you said she's a shutterbug. Beth's a shutterbug. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, she, we, we had a camera. We were on the trips and she would, and you know, we weren't doing anything like with social media or anything. She, we would get back from like a, um, cause we both worked. So it'd be like a, we'd a head out. To the UP yeah. We, we'd head out four hours up to the upper peninsula of, of Michigan and head out on a, uh, Friday afternoon, you know, and head back Sunday night. And, and from Friday night to Sunday night when we get home, I'd have like 760 photos on an SD card to go through. And, and so, I was just in the back, snap, yeah, snap, snap, snap. and yeah. everything. And then, and then we went, I, our first big long trip was uh, through Canada. Um, and we took a week and I got back and I had like four, 1500 photos to go through, you know, and, and so that's where that started We, we, we started taking photos of, or she was taking photos of everything. 
Um, but it's great because, you know, it doesn't seem that long, but obviously we can look back at those photos and see that we both have changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, we have not gotten any younger, but, but we've got... <laughs> it doesn't, we, but, it doesn't <laughs> happen, yeah. Kevin. It just yeah. doesn't happen. <laughs> no, but we, we've got those, those memories to look back on of those, those wonderful places. She was actually looking through them today, trying to find something and she said, "My gosh, we've got a lot of photos." And I'm like, "Yes, you need yeah. to you need to categorize them all, definitely." <laughs> That's the worst, isn't it, with photos? Really, I mean, categorizing, uh, sorting them to begin with, and then categorizing them, tagging them, and everything. Yes, that's the that is a problem I have as well. Yeah, that's probably never going to happen. I would need um, I would need to quit my job, not to ride around the world, but to quit my job just to categorize the photos that we have so far. It's I not think. that important. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when it comes to, you just mentioned traveling around the world, you guys are mainly traveling, I guess, totally traveling in um, in Canada and the United States. Yes. Correct. Yeah. 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 It's, it's more of a, we, we do the long trips. It's more of a, I don't know that they're everyday adventures because we, we're sort of crazy and ride. We have really long six to eight hour rides on <laughs> weekends, but... Um, they're adventures essentially anybody could do, you know, it's, it, it's, um, there's you, a lot to see just yeah, you don't, around us a couple hours. Exactly. Around us. Exactly. But we sort of, we did this up in, you know, when we lived in Indiana, we were, we were, we'd ride for four or 500 miles in a day and ride up along like Michigan. And it was, um, so we've, we've, uh, we, we haven't been around the world, but if we hit the lotto gym. That's what we're going to do. That's definitely, <laughs> that's the route we'll take. Beth, are, are you buying lottery tickets for this? Uh, no. The only time we buy lottery tickets is if we're in a state that sells them. Utah doesn't sell <laughs> okay. them. So Kevin will always like buy one. And, okay. Uh, Publisher's Clearinghouse. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Publisher's something Clearinghouse. Are they still doing that? I, I think, we, we think. I think they wow. are. We're, we're, I think they are. We'd like to believe they are, Jim, because we're counting on that as, as, <laughs> as our future retirement. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, when we talk about traveling around the world, and I mean, that's why I brought it up because quite often people see that as the ultimate thing to do with a motorcycle. And I think it, you know, it can be, but I, I was mentioning, or I was saying a little earlier in this conversation that part of the thrill is, is just discovering places for your first time. So when you get somewhere, the trail goes there, the road goes there, clearly other people have been there. But that thrill of discovery, I mean, that, you can have that in your own state, in your own province, you know, in your own country. You don't have to travel the world to have an amazing time. You guys have been riding for a long time now. You've done a lot of exploring and you've stayed in North America. Yet, I'll bet you there's tons you've got to see still. Oh, well, tons. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, when we, when we, we've lived in Utah five years and we go to southern Utah down, I'll just call it the greater Moab area you know, four times, five times a year, um, you never get, you can't do it all. If you, if you lived in Moab, you can't do it all. And, and everywhere you go, you'll see on a, on a, on a trip, something that you want to do the next time, or, you know, it's like, I wonder what's up that road. And then, and then when you go back though, you, you have your little favorite things that you like to do. So you're going to do those too. And, and I know just, I mean, we've been to Banff on trips two years apart, but we've been twice up in that area and 
the only thing in common was the Icefields Parkway. But other than that, everything else was different. There's just so much to explore in that area. I'm sure if you live in the Banff area, you can't do it all. So, um, and, and, you know, the, the funny thing is most people don't explore their own backyard. It, you know, we've, we've moved a lot, um, over the years in our marriage with jobs and so forth. And, um, you know, we, we met in Tennessee and moved to North Carolina, moved to Indiana, moved to Utah and everywhere we go, We've noticed the people that live there never do anything where they live. <laughs> they always, yeah, they always go somewhere, and and we've we've become um, really good at knowing Utah. And most people born and raised here look at our photos and go, "Where's that?" And I'm like, "How do you never been there? Yeah, how do you not know where Zion National Park is? I've never been. <laughs> They've lived here their entire lives, and they're you know 60 years old. So, um, you know." We are blessed and we recognize it to live in such a scenic place with that's so friendly for, for big off-road bikes. But, um, you know, that doesn't mean we, we just started getting into Idaho and really discovering oh, yeah. Idaho in Idaho a time. And, and we haven't even scratched the surface at all on Colorado or anything. So um, we've been over there, but, you know, we could probably spend the rest of our lives riding those, this three state, states. the three states and still never see it all. And of course, you've been to Montreal, so you know what it's like to go to another country where they don't speak English. Yes. Love that. Yes. The first we, Quebec, love Quebec. Actually, yeah, that we was took, our first trip. PEI and Nova Scotia. And yeah, that's quite, that's quite a trip you did. You guys did the full run around. You did the Cabot Trail, the whole bit. Yeah, we did. It, it, you know, it's funny. We we were going to book a trip, and we were, I said, well, let's book let's let's plan a motorcycle trip next year. Nothing but motorcycle. And we were looking at going out west. And it's sort of funny because we moved out here. But I'm like, we, we could go out west. And, and then it dawned on me, well, we may need a backup plan because we were still not really – we were learning traveling on a motorcycle. There is that you know trial and error there, just learning the clothes and the things and how to pack. <laughs> and, and I'm like, we, you know, we need a backup plan in case there's horrendous thunderstorms or something we don't really want to ride into, right? And, and um, we, we were watching PBS, and they had a special on Canada, and I saw Ottawa and Quebec, and I'm like, we have got to go there. And, and our whole – we changed everything and decided we're going to ride to Quebec. And – um, we, we rode up through, um, Michigan into, uh, London, Ontario and across Ontario and, and went to Quebec and, and, you know, we didn't know that French was the language there. We didn't really study it. We're just get we got on the bike and we got, went and, um, it was so awesome to be somewhere where we don't know the language. I, I don't, it, we, we enjoyed that. And in the city, it's not. They'll understand English. They'll have an, a menu in English. But when we got to the southern part of that province, like down in Sherbrooke and stuff, um, yeah, they they don't know English down there. And it was it was probably the best part of just communicating with people and still getting around and and not knowing the language. And we felt, even though we're just across the border, we felt like we were in, you know. France. I mean, we might as well have been a million miles away from there. It was, it was that I, I think people realize. Yeah. And that probably got us hooked. That probably, that trip is probably what really 
got us hooked on <laughs> going places away. And then, uh, and, and Jim, I know you know this, but Americans know nothing of Canada. So <laughs> that, that, <laughs> so it's even greater so, discovery just because of that. Yeah, I guess it's like they don't. They, it's I when, think they think it's America extended. Yeah, yeah when we tell people, <laughs> when not. we tell people we went to Quebec, they're like, "Huh? What? Where's that?" So, but um, what what a what a lovely trip in Nova Scotia, and and I would go back to any of those places in a heartbeat. That's that's the hard thing about traveling. I think is you want to duplicate so many things because mm-hmm. you they are so beautiful and the people are so friendly and you're like, wow, I'd love to get back up on, you know, and see that area again. Are you guys camping or are you hoteling it? Mainly hoteling. I, I, so I laughed when Kevin talked about learning how to pack Jim. So when (laughs) (laughs) when we took our first big trip, I mean, I packed workout gear. I packed, you know, I might as well packed a cocktail dress. Seriously. I'm a, High heels. I'm. I. I did not pack high heels. I do not think I did. But you know, I. I think I'm. I'm a girly girl. I mean, I. I dress for work. I'm. I'm an executive, so I have to dress for work. But on the weekends now, it's different. I mean, I want to be out in the dirt. I want to come back with dirt on my face. And, um, but our first trip, just packing was crazy because I hardly wore anything I brought. You know, you're pretty much in your motorcycle gear all day long. You're just too tired to go back and kind of, you know, change and then head out for dinner. You're just like, oh, let's just grab a bite to eat. It's seven o'clock already. But um, I'm the one who pretty much insists on a hotel. And it's we have camped. I enjoy it. But I feel that all I do and this may be a woman and I don't mean to sound sexist to my own great gender, (laughs) but I just feel like all I do when we camp is just organize crap. You know, I just run around and organize the stuff and I don't want to be screwing with that. Um, but we, well, he's looking confused. Jim, this, this woman, this woman prefers to take a shower at the end of a long day too. I'll just say that. So, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a gender thing. A soft bed at the end of a long 500 mile day and a hot shower. It's the best thing in life after a long day. It's just, nothing's better. So, we but, certainly have camp, but yeah, the the, the trips. Um, I will say this: my level of hotel expectations is not what it used to be, so that's okay. I just <laughs> I just really, need a clean. You're yeah, to accept cost, much less now. Yes, yes, clean bed and just that's a, a, a you know a clean towel, and I'm good to go. Yeah, okay. we we don't we don't have to stay in the hotels that look like castles anymore. <laughs> so essentially, we, we we don't have to do that when we. When we travel, we can go not quite full flea bag, but um, <laughs> but but now we can go to a just little motel, and that's okay. So um, traveling has become less expensive the more that we've done this. Well, the the one thing with moteling it is that you don't have to carry your camping gear, and of course that saves you weight and bulk um, as you're packing for two people on one motorcycle. Yeah. And you you guys are running um, hard panniers, aren't you? Yeah. We are. We are. And you haven't beat them yet? I mean, doing the off-road oh. sections? We, we've we scratched up. We've, <laughs> we've dinged them. We've definitely dinged them. Um, when we do a big, long trip, though, we, we pack. Um, they're full. The top box is full. We've got some luggage we attach on top. Um, we're probably That's right cool. at the 
right at the limit of of making the bike ride a, a full time wheelie to our final destination <laughs> with all the weight on it. But but um, you know, it's funny when people do camp. I'm like, what are they giving up? Because I know I've got like three shirts, three pairs of underwear, two socks, and a pair of shoes. I'm like, what? How did they pack all this other stuff on there? Um, so riding two up is a challenge on, um, as far as packing, goes. as far as packing and the riding, but, um, the, the fact that we don't really camp obviously lets us put more of our personal items in there and cameras and so forth. And, um, and, and we've learned to do laundry about Along every three, yeah, yeah, about every three days. Hang so, it up all over the room. Yeah. I guess kind of thing. Beth, which panniers are yours? The bigger one. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard this Just the largest one. Yeah, the top bag really carries gear and uh, cameras, things like that, gloves, hats, you know, windshield spray, stuff like that. But then he gets the smaller – it's like the closets, Jim, in the house. You know, I get the bigger closet. (laughs) Well, so what what I do now on the trip because of everything she packs – I just go ahead and put on all three pairs of my underwear and all three <laughs> pairs of my socks and all three of my shirts, and I wear them underneath my riding gear. Um, so essentially, I, I'm a human suitcase on the trip I to, love to make it, to make it available for her. You know, she's, warmth, she got more room. padding. It's it's great. There's so many pluses. Then I get what you do when the yeah. one's dirty. Well, it works out really. It you works out really well. Yeah. Exactly. It works out really well for the relationship building part of it all too. So see what it gives up for me. That's that's a great packing tip. I'm glad we got that from you (laughs) as as well. (laughs) Wear all your clothes. Yeah. It's funny because you, I know when we first went on the trips, you packed too much and then you realize, no, I only need like one pair of blue jeans. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, I just, I've got a hat, a couple of shirts, um, you realize you don't really need a lot. And that's probably um, probably taught us a little bit in life, too, just in general. You realize you don't really need what you think you need. It's it's you know, you 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 can travel and be on a motorcycle for two weeks and you really don't need a lot. I mean, because you're going to have to do laundry anyway. You can't put enough on there, enough clean stuff in there for two weeks. And um, you learn that hey, I just need these basic items and I'm okay. And um, if if something comes up, I'll buy something along the way. And I'm sure we've all done that on a trip. You end up going, well, I probably should have packed a long sleeve t-shirt. Now's my opportunity to buy one in Ottawa, you know? So um, there's always that availability. It's usually weather related though. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a weather related purchase when we go somewhere. (laughs) Like last time we were in Canada. Your sunglasses when your lens popped out. Yeah, right? when your sunglasses fly off of your helmet, um, yes, or um, when you get to Canada and realize it's much colder than you thought it was going to be and it's snowing, <laughs> so you stop and buy a wool long sleeve t-shirt or things like that. But, you know, that's the great thing about traveling. Somewhere there's a store that will sell what you need if you forgot to bring it. Are you ever concerned when you're riding the off-road sections into more remote places that if you have any sort of breakdown or anything, you're going to be detained? You've got no sleeping bag, no camping gear? I am. He looked at me like, like, why would we ever be concerned about that? Well, I am. I mean, I have often thought since I can't ride, and I even if I could ride, I doubt I could ride that big 1200, but 
I've often thought about taking a backcountry um, first aid class, and I think this winter uh, I'll probably take that class. And uh, but we do carry a spot, yeah. so um, we it, I I bought one of those probably three years ago mm-hmm. after a crash. I was by myself in the West Desert and thought, you know, that may be a good thing to have because. Um, there was no cell service where I was at and everything was okay. But I thought, you know, probably need to have something like that. So um, we just make sure we've got some kind of connection to the outside world where if something happens in those remote areas. Um, we're, we're protected. And then if we have to stay the night, oh, well. That's, that's when the <clears throat> Gore-Tex gear comes into place. Yeah. <laughs> Well, last our last trip last year to Banff, um, where we stayed uh, by happenstance, it was a beautiful privately owned cabins uh, in the Banff National Forest, right? Mm-hmm. And the the young man who worked in the main cabin told us about a logging road that was just wonderful that he had his jeep on, and we were like, "Should we do it?" And we're like, "Sure, let's go do it." And uh, I think we took a wrong turn, and we ended up probably driving about fifty kilometers, and ended up the road just ended. But there were trailers back there um, for logging guys and dirt bikes, and I thought, "Oh, this could end really badly. This could end with both of us, you know, dead or missing." Or we were uh, pretty remote, and. Yeah. and- and I, I still remember and we, the, had street it was, we were riding along the St. Mary's River. I will not forget that out of Kimberly. I wasn't worried we weren't going to get back home or get back somewhere safe. I was just worried we were going to do it at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And we had already had a very long day. But, um, yeah, I, I think in the remote areas, um, like I said, as long as we've got some kind of uh, connection and and, and anyone should carry something when you're like that, have some kind of lifeline to the outside world. Then if it really gets bad, you obviously got help on the way and then you're good. What advice would you have for others that are looking to ride maybe two up doing the same sort of thing you're doing? Start slow. Yeah. Start slow. I, I really wish there'd be more women who were willing to do that. It, really is fun and so far i mean i I do have a big bruise on my back right at this point but (laughs) it was pointed out to me today i'm like oh did i get a bruise when we fell last weekend but um you know i mean it didn't hurt so i just i wish more women would do it it just um i think there's a i think there's a fear there i i we we, but if you start slow yeah, we, we've talked to um, – actually, when we go on rides, one of the questions that we get when we go with a group is from – because it's mainly males um, by themselves on the motorcycle. And, and the questions we get is how do you get her out? How, you know, I try to get my wife. And I said, well um, – and we've actually talked with the local um, BMW shop about this, about doing a ride with couples is, you know, hey – Probably if they're not used to doing it, you don't want to throw them on a bike and go bounce them through the UNA National Forest all day. Mm-hmm. And you probably want to make it, you know, slow, maybe take them somewhere to dinner. Um, you know, if you're going to take them on an overnighter, maybe make sure that that there's a spa involved the next oh, day or some kind of But But I think, you know, something to make it a togetherness thing. And, and then, you know, we – because 
when we bought the GS and I had the other bike, so I don't know that Beth will remember this, but so we, we headed out on this mining road, which there's tons of them in Utah and they're, they're always pretty gnarly roads. And we headed out on this mining road and I had no idea what I was getting into. And it was bad and there was big drop offs and, and I'm not real good with heights anyway. And that she wasn't real good because I'm not real good. We had these big drop offs on this road and, and then the next week we went out in the desert and I crashed in the sand, threw her off the bike. She got a big bruise on the back of her leg and we're doing another ride and she's, she's talking to the communicators and she's basically saying, you know, what is this? I was on this bike. I was sitting on the back. It was comfortable. And now you're bouncing my butt all over these mountains to this <laughs> desert. And why did we get this motorcycle? She, I do remember yeah, that. she was not happy. And I actually called the, the motorcycle store and said, hey, I know I just bought this. What, how, what's it going to cost me if I traded it and got an RT? And, <laughs> oh, really? And, and, oh, yeah. It was a whole thing because I'm like – because it was it was our togetherness thing. And all of a sudden, now this had become a bone of contention. And so I called him and he said, well, it's going to cost you a lot of money. So I'm like, I have got to make her like this motorcycle. Oh, this is going to be thousands of dollars. And, um, we just took it maybe a little easier after that. And, and, um, and well, you don't it, know what you don't know. Yeah. If you start off slow and I feel like, okay, I can trust him. His skills are gaining. I, I, not, not cr- crashing less definitely helped her like the motorcycle more, I believe. But well, we weren't even going that fast. Yeah, when I think that happened. So I was like, how could you crash going that slow? What if we're going <laughs> <fast>? <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> but I think that the, the, the at the end, we, you know, quit doing the boneheaded stuff and, and heading off into sand dunes and things that, that, you know, you know, I got this adventure bike and just thought, well, you could just go anywhere on this thing. And it's like, oh, no, there's skill involved. So we we I dialed it back a little bit and then we started going to places and seeing really cool things off road. And and then we just learned along the way and it became the thing that we do. But, um, you know, she had done it with me long enough that she sort of stuck with me through that. But, you know, most of the, I don't think I felt like that for that very long. I think it might've been just that one. You remember that though. Yeah, Yeah, I I guess. Yeah, I do. She was very unhappy, Jim. And, and Ben, what, what changed with you, with your thought process? Was it the riding? Like, did Kevin just not go in his rough places or was it something that changed with you as far as your comfort zone in the back? I, th- I, you know, I think it was the places we were seeing, you know, it was, it was the, mm, that's a good um, yeah, you know, and that, that made me forget. I truly think it was probably just that one ride. I think we were more on a single track, like ATV trail that, that one time that we went up that side of that mountain there. Right. And so I think that was just a little freaky. And then the next time we went out, we were in the desert and we kind of fell going slow speed. So I think just. Those first three rides, it was sand, side of mountain, crashing. <laughs> Those were the three first rides. So it was kind of like, oh, I don't know. You know, I just don't know about this. I'm, I'm older. You know, I think if I break a hip, I'm going to be, that's it. And But I do think it was just the destinations, the places we were seeing. We were by ourselves. Many days we were out on our own and never saw another soul. 
you know, riding, you know, 150 miles off road or so. And so that I think it's the destination and just being out there. You're not on the road. You're out with nature and out. It's kind of, you know, Jim, you said it earlier. You're like an adventurer. You're an explorer. And that, I think, is really probably what changed my mind because I don't remember really feeling like that for long at all. Maybe just that one ride. Maybe it was those three rides. And now she hates the asphalt. And now it's like, when are we getting off of this on to something else where we're, yeah. So, um, yeah. And it's roads less their travel too, isn't it? Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, I think it could be anywhere. Um, you know, we're, we're, like I said, we're certainly fortunate here. It doesn't, you know, you, you, we happen to live in a state where there's more dirt roads than there are asphalt roads. So, and they're all two very remote places and they're fire roads and, you know, and, and, you you can get on those and not see a lot of people and and I said just see old forgotten ghost towns and old forgotten logging towns and villages other tips for for riding two up have patience i i think um just take it start slow have patience um build Both the of trust you, or are you talking pillion I, I think I'm probably, well, I don't know. He probably would say have patience too, because there are times I get tired. Not, not often, but, um, I'm speaking for myself here, Jim. Mm -hmm. I would say have patience with the, the driver and, um, you know, sometimes I want to go, 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 and he may need a, a break and I can tell because I can hear him and he's been working hard, 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 but, um, I would say if you're riding two up and you're on the road and you you want to see what's off road, just start slow. That would probably be the start slow and easy, because if you want your partner to ride with you, you're going to have to build that communication, that trust, that respect, the understanding of physical body language and, you know, um, so I would say that for the pillion side of it. I don't really have, I just, you know, it, it, I, I can think back to when we weren't in sync when we first started riding and, um, cause I could feel her moving around on the bike mm -hmm. and sort of back there doing her own thing. We're more in sync. And, um, I just, it, and this sounds corny, but it's really from the bottom of my heart. She'll be, she'll be with her family, um, here next week and, and I'll probably do some riding by myself, but it's really for me it's not as enjoyable when I'm by myself because I don't have my partner there. I'm not conversating with somebody. It's more of a, a, a lonely trip and it's not something I'm used to anymore. So, um, you know, I, I just think it's a great way, you know, to, to share adventure with the one you love. Um, I can't imagine anything that makes those adventures more memorable than that. Beth and Kevin Young. You can find out more about them. Visit their website, twouptogether.com. That's the number two. Of course, that link will be in our show notes. Stay with us. We're going to be right back in just a minute with Brett Tax and our writer skills. PSSOR is Puget Sound Safety Off-Road Training, and that is a division of Puget Sound Safety, which has been training motorcyclists since 1996. you got a long history here. Now, if you want to improve your riding skills, and who doesn't want to do that, 
PSSOR specializes in adventure motorcycle training. They've got multi-day ADV camps and they've got multi-day adventure training expeditions. Now the camps, you stay in one spot, but you're there for a couple of days. The training expeditions, you're actually doing something like the one of the backcountry discovery routes where you're learning as you ride in the real world. Um, all of this, of course, is with pro instructors. Um, this is all top-notch, world-class training. So if you're flying in, you can also arrange a bike rental with them, and you can even get special instruction if that's what you need. Drop by their website and have a look at their rider training programs. And, and don't forget to book quickly because these courses are very popular and they often sell out quickly. So drop by www.pssor.com. And anytime you're dealing with them, just mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. The Good Adventure Company is headed up by J.J. Lewis, and the ethos for them is to make the world a better place to live and ride. And they sort of do that by donating proceeds to worthwhile causes. For instance, um, they say they've donated almost $10,000 over the past couple of years to a school in Bato Pilos. And that's pretty amazing. So they do it by selling motorcycle gear like soft luggage, tires, and other things from their websites, as well as doing guided trips. Um, So you can drop by their website, www.good-adv.com, and look at all the gear they sell. It's a normal gear store, but they also have on there a link for their guided trips. And they have one that goes into the Copper Canyon, which Jay AJ has told me many times now is a stunning ride. So coming this October, October 28th, matter of fact, October 28th to November 4th, they're running one of these trips. Now these are for high intermediate or expert level adventure riders, JJ says. Um, And he says you can expect some amazing off-road sections that will test even the hardiest of riders. So if you're into this, I mean, this is, this sounds like a good opportunity. Twisties that go on forever. And um, by the sounds of it from the previous trips that they've run, these are real adventures. These aren't hand-holding things. You got to be a good rider to start out with. Drop by their website, check out what they're doing and check out these trips, www.good-adv.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Do you want to hear a creepy fact? The car you were following last on the highway, if that driver had decided to stomp on the brakes, that car would have been able to stop a lot faster than what you could. Oh, you thought your bike could stop faster than a car? Well, today on Rider Skills, we have Brett Tax with some information about your brakes that may surprise you. It might even make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And in the end, we've got some tips that may actually improve your stopping distance, even if you have ABS. I'm here with Brett Tax. Brett, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Always glad to be chatting with you. Looking forward to today's topic. And of course, always a pleasure to have you on too. When it comes to bike brakes, bikes break incredibly well. I mean, everybody knows this. This is, this is sort of a, an industry standard assumption that we all have, so unless you're maybe riding an older bike that isn't, uh, doesn't have one of the modern braking systems, but they, they break incredibly well. So what is it about our brakes that we don't know? You know, I ask riders all the time whether they believe a car can stop faster, a bike can stop faster. And and there's always two sides to that. You know, some guys say the car, sometimes say the same, sometimes the bike. But 
far, far, far too common. People believe that the bike can stop faster than a car or even equal to a car. And depending on how we look at this, neither one is actually true. You mean to say our bike, our lightweight bike that accelerates so quickly can't stop as fast as the average vehicle? That just doesn't make sense. Well, and that's what a lot of people are looking at. And some of them calculate, they go, well, a car is heavier. Well, what they're not taking into account is it's a bigger vehicle, but they also have more points of contact. You know, they have four points of contact instead of two, and they have much larger braking systems. So the braking system matches the vehicle. And with a motorcycle, and here's the other one, is people are thinking sport bikes stop faster than you know, like a cruiser, like a Harley. And that's not true either because they're made for a single emergency stop. The 2012 Harley-Davidson Switchback, and let's just, let's just assume that's not a high-performance machine, Okay. At 60 miles an hour, it takes 114 feet to stop. If a professional rider is riding it in ideal conditions, in comparison, the 2012 CBR 1000 stopped in 115 feet at, at a 1.46 G stop, right? And and you're going, well, wait a minute. This is a this is a big cruiser compared to a a modern sport bike, and there's just so much to braking that riders just don't understand. So how is it that you get something that, that weighs far more? I mean, smart bike uh, would have, uh, I guess, smaller tires. Well, it may not even have smaller tires than the, than the Harley. I'm not quite sure what, you know, where all this comes into play then. Well, so when we look at motorcycles, we have, because, you know, cars is the same thing. When we're looking at high-end, you know, cars, uh, let's say uh, take a Porsche 911, you know, a Carrera. This is, a, you know, a good performance car, 2012, same year as those motorcycles. 1.27, let's see, uh, it was basically 1.3 G stop, which is 94 feet. So they're stopping 20 feet shorter than the motorcycles, you know, performance to performance. But when you look at mo- motorcycles, they have two limitations. Either it's upset which means that it does a stoppy. If you watch dual sports or sport bikes, the guys that stand them up on the front wheel, the limitation is they can only have so much braking before that back end starts to try to come up and over the front wheel. With the bigger cruisers and, and sport bikes or even like a large GS like mine, chances of me standing up on the front wheel are pretty slim unless I hit something. But they, they have a traction limitation. At some point, the tires just aren't going to hold. And so those are the limitations that... that help even out that playing field. Now, when you look at the sport bike versus the cruiser, and I'm sure somebody out there is already scratching the head and and ready to scream at me, the sport bike, they have much, much better braking system. There's no doubt about it. It's more efficient. It's designed to stop over and over and over. But a sport bike is designed to, to slow a bike. It's because of the racetrack over and over and over and over again, where these big cruisers or even our, our big touring bikes and adventure bikes, they're really designed to stop us one time if we have an emergency. And they work great. If you try to run that Harley in this, on the racetrack, it won't be long before the brakes aren't doing much. You know. But we're talking about a single stop. We're talking the car that pulls out in front of you, the deer that jumps out in front of you, you know, uh, the thing that you couldn't plan for, didn't plan for, and how well can you stop? And that's the, the kind of braking that I'm talking about. When you mentioned G, you said something about 1.3 G stop. What is that? What, what, what sort of um, reference do we have so we can put that in context with this conversation? So one of the things I've, I've tried to do, and, and I've been teaching for now 20 years, and I had a nine-year project uh, that just ended last year where I was teaching um, the special ops units and, and military units uh, in the U.S. And it wasn't teaching them how to ride in combat. It was teaching them how not to die when they're at home on their own motorcycles. It was a stop loss program. 
And we needed to have some reference that we could pull that they could realize where they stood in, in other traffic. So using a G-force, if you think about it, you're standing to the ground, there's one G of force pulling you down. You think about the airplanes when they, they pull back really hard and you can feel yourself being pushed down into the seat. That's a G-force. And, and when it's more than one, then you'll feel that extra pressure. So we measured that. Uh, on an average deceleration rate, and we convert it over to a G number. And that way we can compare cars and bikes and all these across the board. And many people will hit a threshold. And when I say threshold, that means, you know, you break traction or the back wheel comes off the ground. But they may have a very poor average deceleration rate because they, they may get to the threshold, but it takes them a very long time to get there. And so we use it, we can pull car numbers through uh, car and driver, which are very consistent. And we use motorcycle consumer news, which takes no advertising or funding from any of the manufacturers. They do all their own testing numbers and we use their numbers to pull initially. And then of course we've done, you know, nine years of, of testing and, and using different bikes and pulling numbers to verify that, you know, our numbers are very accurate and consistent with theirs. How do you measure a G-force? So for us, we actually have a class we do this in now, um, but we pull out the radar gun and we have the rider come down. We don't actually care what speed they come down at because we have a radar gun. And they come into a, a certain braking point. And when they begin to brake, we already know what their speed is because we pull the radar right at the braking point. And then we measure the distance. And if they brake a little early or a little later, then we add or subtract the distance from when they applied the brake. So we get an accurate stop distance. And then we use a formula that converts the speed and the distance into an average deceleration rate, which allows us to compare against other vehicles. What does the average rider stop at? What sort of G-force? So the average motorcycle stops around a 0.7 G. That's about 30% less than what the average motorcycle is capable of. And we came to that number, one, by looking at the numbers that were given to us by accident reconstructionists in the legal world. I do... Um, uh, expert witness testimony uh, you know, over the last several years. And then also we started taking the numbers of the riders that we trained and the average average around the same was 0.69 something. It was within a, a margin of error of 0.7. So our numbers confirmed what the, the, the legal industry stated. And that's how we came up with the 0.7. Now, if we look at the training standards, at least in the United States, they train to 100%, if you take a, an experienced rider course or a basic rider course in the States, they'll train and give you a big gold star if you can hit 0.63. So well underneath that average rider. And from what I'm seeing as, as riders coming back through and I'm able to put numbers on them, the, ex, you know, the new rider after they graduate ends up dropping down to about a half a G, so about 50% what the bike's capable of. So the average, 0.7. And in nine years of training these military guys, and you realize every single one of these guys had multiple motorcycle training courses. They are not allowed to do this, and many of them were instructors. In nine years, not a single rider who hadn't already worked with us um, was able to meet the capability of their motorcycle. They all came up short and usually very significantly. So, well, hang on a second for, for again, for perspective, do you know what the average uh, vehicle driver manages to stop in? Because if they're, if they're capable on average of 1G, what are they pulling off? Yeah, if you take a look at a car, there's, because they're computerized, there's, there's virtually no skill involved in stopping a car. So, perspective-wise, the worst minivan produced in 2016 pulled almost a 095 
you know, almost a, a, a one, a solid one G stop. When driven by the average driver. Just period. It didn't matter whether it was a professional driver or my teenage daughter putting on makeup while she was texting. All she has to do is stomp on the pedal and that car will pull a 0.95 G every single time. Right. Whereas with a motorcycle, you've got everything to deal with, with getting on the brakes. You're worried about traction. You're worried about steering. You're worried about so many things over just stomping on the brake. Yeah. And, and if you make an error, the penalties are high. I mean, we've got two points of contact. And if you, if you break beyond the threshold, you fall down and, and then you start not slowing down very fast. <laughs> you know, you go much faster when you lay a bike down than if you stay up on the tires where you have a lot more, um, traction. The, and that, that actually is a, is another topic too, the laying the bike down that, that people often talk about. But before we go any further here, hang on, I, I want to go back to this because you just said that the average motorcyclist is doing less than 0.7 G's yet the minivan with an inexperienced driver can do almost a G. So what you're saying is the average vehicle is actually stopping faster than our motorcycles by a long shot. That's the reality. Wow. And that's, and that's what throws people off when they go, well, if you look at the numbers and you look at vehicle capability and go, look, the average motorcycle stops in about the same distance as the average car until you put a motorcyclist on it. The, you know, that is a, a real eye opener, I think, for a lot of people. Because like I said at the start, that is the assumption that bikes accelerate, that they handle, they do everything better than cars. But really, there's very little that bikes are doing better than cars now, isn't there, as far as handling goes? Well, and, and, we, and we lose a lot of even that, that equal match that we talk about saying, OK, so professional rider, you know, and, and I'm, I'm one of those riders. I do this all the time. So I know that I can pull one G stops on rental bikes and everything else because that's what we had to do for years and years. But in perfect conditions, I can do that. But you throw some sand down, and those numbers don't stay the same. You take me out in the rain, it's not going to be the same. You add panic in or, or lean in, it's not going to be the same. Where the cars, they've got four. It, and the other thing that we have to keep in mind when we're comparing against cars is they have four points of contact. So if one of their tires runs over a patch of sand, they lose 25% of their braking. You run over a patch of sand with a with a bike and you're losing 50%. And because those tires are in line, the, the other tires probably going through, through the same patch of sand, you know, just moments after that. You know? mm. And we really, really have a disadvantage when it comes to stopping. And yet I see bikes tailgating and falling closely and believing they can stop very quickly all the time. Let's just look at this, though, in the real world, though, when it comes to braking. So we're, we're, we're talking 0.7 G. What does that work out to? I mean, what are we talking about with distance-wise? So one of the, the – uh, I did a video for, uh, for the Washington Traffic Safety Commission a few years back. And, and well, I actually did a video, and then they asked to reproduce it. And it was doing exactly that. How do I, how do I put this into real-world terms? So let me put it this way. If – if we're going 45 miles an hour, which is a, which is a pretty reasonable, you know, speed, you know, most of us ride through that speed all the time. And you have a brand new rider who, who graduated out of the class or a week after the class stopped at a half a G and you have, you know, the expert on the bike who can stop at one G the difference in distance at 45 miles an hour is a semi truck pulling a trailer. That's from bumper to bumper. That's a big distance. That's a big distance. You know, you bring it back to the testing standard, we're talking a bus, you know, a nice big city bus, you know, and that's, that's, at, the, that's at the gold star standard, you know, of graduating your, your rider standard. And then it goes down from there. And that's um, asphalt too, by the way. 
that's on asphalt. We're not talking gravel. And believe me, I know how much longer you can stop in gravel, you know, when, when uh, you need to get on the brakes. I had this last weekend, I was up in the mountains leading the tours, one of the, uh, the backcountry discovery route training tours. And we've got another one coming up in here in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited about it. But I came around one of these quarters and I was going really slow. I was going, you know, 20 miles an hour. This is three lanes wide. This is a huge piece of, uh, of, you know, real estate out here. And I have a Subaru coming around the other direction and he must've been doing, I, well, in my eyes, it looked like he was doing a hundred, but he was probably doing 40, 45. And when he came around and I hit the brakes, he was square bumper to bumper on me. And holy cow, did that bike take a long time to stop? You know, at least that's the way it felt. It might as well have been a mile long. And, and even though I was being very reasonable in my speed and, and trying to be visible to other drivers and everything else, them coming around, you know, that closing speed when they're coming at you that fast, that's pretty fast. You know, if he's doing 40 and I'm doing 20, that's 60. And I'm sure he was going faster. Um, it, we forget that a lot. And, and what the capabilities are and, you know, ABS, you know, a lot of guys are relying on ABS, but they don't understand how that works either or how that plays into this whole factor. When you're teaching one of your courses and you're talking about braking, you're showing how to maximize your braking efforts. Um, what do you do there? Like what kind of experiments do you do? Or what kind of uh, things do you run the riders through to help them understand the distances it takes? And the reason I bring this up is because exactly what you just said there, when you made the corner and the, and the Subaru was there, I mean, you're talking 45 mile per hour, which I'm trying to do the conversion to kilometers is something like, uh, I don't know, let's say 70 kilometers an hour or something like that. Um, it's not very fast, but you, you know, you top a dirt hill, especially, Especially on, on dirt roads, and all of a sudden you're looking at something that's that's incredibly different than probably than what you imagined as far as just stopping and safety. Well, it, for me, braking has become a a very hot topic to incorporate into the training programs we have because when I look at accidents and why people are falling off gravel roads and off paved roads, that becomes a huge factor. And the performance level of the riders is is a huge factor. So we have a street program. It's, the, it's called the Advanced Street Skills, uh, the one-on-one program. And I'd already mentioned, we actually bring out the radar gun like we did for our our federal clients. And we have each rider come down. when they for, The first thing they do when they show up uh, is we line them up and they come down. They get to pick their speed, you know, uh, because we don't want them to do anything silly or someplace where we have a, an incident and we have them come down and they, we have them do two stops. Give us your best stop as if you were just out on the road and all of a sudden you need to stop. And then we're able to convert those number and give them back to them. And they know exactly where their numbers were when they entered the program. And when they finish the, the second level of that we, we do that same drill as an exit. So they know exactly how much they improved and, and knowing what your capabilities is, is, is so key in making choices. How much falling distance do I need? You know, how fast do I need to ride? If you don't actually know how you compare, because we all think we're better than average. Everybody thinks they're better than average, uh, or at least uh, in the majority. And the off-road is the same thing. When we do the, you know, the adventure camps, you know, we do braking activities in the adventure camp. And on the BDR training tours, we do the same thing. As soon as we get on the gravel, we do braking activities on the gravel so riders know exactly how much distance they need to follow, how well they're doing. They become confident in the bikes. And it's the thing that we never want to use, but we really need to do well when the time comes. Okay, so for instance, when it comes to ABS braking, what do we need to know about ABS? I mean, I would think that I think most people are going to assume that you haul on those brakes as hard as you can and everything else is handled by the computer. And the computers do amazingly well. But 
you know, there's so much myth and misinformation that's in the writing world. And, and a lot of people go, well, I can stop faster than ABS. And this comes from old technology. That's where a lot of this myth comes from. So to give you a comparison, uh, in, I had a, an FJR several years back, a Yamaha FJR with ABS. It was in 2005. And my ABS failed. And here's the kicker. The ABS fail light never came on. I had no idea that the system stopped functioning. And what I know is that when we were doing these, these drills and these activities with the military, I could only stop at around a 0.95, and then my ABS would cycle on. The older ABS was built to begin cycling at a predicted threshold or an actual detection of slip. But, they, but there was a fair gap there. And the day that I found out the ABS wasn't working is when the back end came up. And, you know, I came up about, you know, eight inches or something, not a lot. It's a big touring bike. But that's the day that I figured out, oh, hey, this ABS is no longer functioning, which meant that I wasn't just hammering the brakes. I was trying to use technique first. Well, just looking at that number, you go, oh, well, I can outbreak the ABS system. And that was absolutely true. That's not true anymore. In 2015, 2016, those numbers closed. And the riders, even the professional riders testing out there are not beating the ABS systems. Um, I thought that was really interesting. So, of course, being the guy that I am, I went out and thought, I'm going to go do some testing. And I took a 2014 uh, Triumph Tiger 800XC, great motorcycle, wonderful ABS system. Uh, not as high tech as the Ducati or some of the BMWs, but a very, very efficient um, ABS system. And I was in uh, Colorado and I went out and I did this 40 mile an hour braking stuff. And the way I test ABS is I come down to my stop point and I just hammer. I just squeeze and stomp and do everything I can to get these things to walk up so that the computer is doing the braking the entire length. Then I shut the system off. I come down and I do my best stop and I compare the differences. And I beat the ABS um, and I beat it by three feet, which isn't a lot. And, and actually, I think it was around 35 miles an hour that day. So I did it one more time. I came down and I did um, threshold braking. So my best stop with the computer still with me and I beat it by another two feet. So what that tells me is the modern systems, a, an expert breaker can still stop faster with an ABS system assisting them than not. But even a, uh, a very unskilled breaker, if they just hammer the brakes, they're still stopping way, way, way better. I mean, 0.7 is a point to a 0.95 on asphalt. Um, that's a that's a huge difference. And and I don't encourage people to just depend on technology because it can fail and it doesn't always warn you. But on the other hand, you've got to trust it or or it's just not going to be there. What about when it comes to gravel? That has, uh, you know, it, that's another one. And, and I hear all the time, you know, off road, we can go into subjects about airing down and all kinds of other stuff, too. But as soon as you take gravel, everybody wants to turn off their ABS unless they have some of the new Enduro ABS. Again, experience is probably the best teaching tool out there. One of the things we do at the Adventure Campus, we have guys do braking with and without their ABS on just so they know what it can do in the grass and the dirt. And what most of the riders are finding out, even with street ABS, they're still stopping faster, especially if they have a street tire, uh, you know, not a really good knobby. But they're actually still stopping faster with the ABS, even off-road, than they are manually. The problem with the, the older ABS is once it starts cycling, sometimes it'll run you out, especially if you're on big boulder stuff going downhill and, or, or you get a little ham-fisted with the brake. It'll, it'll roll out farther than they expect. But 
that's again, go, knowing your equipment so you can decide when is the best time to leave it on, when is the best time to leave it off. And most of the time on gravel roads, riders are better with their ABS on, even if it's not the enduro ABS. Are there any situations where you say ABS definitely should be off, like in mud, for instance? For me, it's the, it's the, and, and this is with um, standard ABS. Some of the enduro stuff is just becoming, it's evolving so fast. I, you know, the, the computers are just way better at responding and detecting things than we are. But when I get into very, very technical, especially downhill technical riding, very loose boulder, very loose rock on the downhill, that's a good time to not have the ABS where skill really needs to be, you know, needs to be king. You know, you've got to be able to to determine that, hey, this is uh, this is slipping and I need to bleed off just enough brakes so that when I hit the ground, I'm not going to lock up and skid, but I can still keep, you know, having some braking force. You know, the same thing for going uphills, you know, when you're talking about traction control or no traction control, these boulder hills or these super loose rock hills, this is where traction control or auto clutches really struggle, you know, over, they haven't quite got there yet, where, where very, very skilled riders can still do better, you know. So if the average rider is stopping at 0.63 or 0.7 G, what sort of techniques can we use to become better breakers with our bikes? Well, start with the pavement. That's usually my thought because it's more consistent. And then for those of us that like to travel, dual sport adventure riders to, you know, to carry this over and, and start with hard pack gravel and your work way down. But it has to do with um, loading traction onto the front wheel. Uh, when we start braking, a, a number that's commonly thrown out there is that 70% of the braking in a hard braking situation is the front brake. And that's not always true. And it's visually not true because every time we see one of these sport bikes with the back wheel in the air, it's a pretty fair assumption that the rear brake at that point is doing zero stopping. So, and, and with the long travel suspension of dual sports, we get a lot more transfer. So it's very common to have much more braking potential on the front wheel being 80, 90% and extreme situations, hundred percent. So we've got to get the, the traction loaded up. And so we start applying the brakes when we apply, um, yeah, there should be a slow progressive squeeze, but it's the amount of pressure you add in that really makes a difference between whether you're stopping quickly or whether you run out and Many riders are very good about the initial application. They, they apply the brakes smoothly. They get the bike to kind of tip forward or, you know, where the attitude, it kind of bows down on the front or the front forks start to compress some. And that's when that load goes onto the front tire. Where they fall short is as the bike slows, there's a greater reserve of traction that's no longer being used, which means they can add additional pressure into the braking system or squeeze at the lever uh, or pressure at the foot so that they can actually continue to slow. So as that bike slows, they need to keep increasing that pressure and to match the amount of ability that's there. The, the well, hang on, what, why is there more ability there to, to brake as they're braking? Well, so traction itself is, oh, we hear this all the time about, oh, I want a bigger tire because I have more surface area. And what riders aren't realizing is traction is more equation of pounds per square inch. So if I have a one square inch with 100 pounds on it, there's 100 pounds on that square inch. If I have a patch that's four square inches, then I have 25 pounds on each square inch. But it's the same amount of pressure. So they have the same traction load. Well, what happens when you apply the brakes on the bike, 
you get a load transfer forward. And most people think of it as a weight transfer, but it's a load transfer to that front tire. And so as the back tire comes up, the extra weight is pushed down and the resistance of braking is pushed onto that front tire and it increases how many pounds per square inch is on that tire. I think uh, this is also uh, something you and I talked about, how when people get stuck and I, I mentioned, hey, you want to get them out of the dirt. And instead of getting from behind the bike and just pushing, you get behind the bike and you put all your weight on the, the back rack and you, you push down on the back rack. So you're not actually pushing the bike. You're pushing down. You're, you're, you're basically sitting on the back of the bike. You're adding more pounds per square inch so they have more traction to get out of that dirt. Well, with braking, it's the same thing as the weight transfers forward or the load transfers forward, they have more pounds per square inch. And because the bike is already slowing, that means that there's, um, there's more actual traction available for the braking because it's not just trying to keep the bike upright. So once that front suspension compresses, that's when you know you've got added friction there and you, you have more ability to brake. And you can continue to add pressure. Uh, obviously, as we get off road, the traction surface changes very quickly. And this is where ABS becomes great is, you know, we're talking about this, you know, just keep adding pressure as the bike slows. You can add more pressure, the more miles per hour, more kilometers per hour that come off, the more pressure you can put on. That's great until you hit a patch of sand or, or a patch of, uh, you know, rain or, or a little blob of mud in the road or a paint strip then all of a sudden that, that total available traction decreases very, very quickly, you know, maybe momentarily or maybe longer. And, and that's where sometimes people, because they're right near the threshold, they're braking very hard. When they hit that, all of a sudden you have less traction, they get a slide. And that's where the ABS can cycle in and save them where a, a regular rider like you or I have to detect the slide and bleed off just enough brake so that we can get roll back to the tire and then reapply the brake. I'm not saying release the brake and grab it. I'm talking bleed off just a little tiny bit of power. And we've talked a lot about that where we're not releasing, you know, controls. We just sort of massage them, you know, for, for traction control and the, the clutch and the braking and all that. And that's this, those skill sets come back into play when we're talking about this maximum braking. And an example of that uh, with the computers knowing more, being able to detect more, is uh, if you have a ABS on your on your bike, I'm sure you've run into a time where you've got on the back brake and felt it chatter and thought, think, well, I didn't think I was actually skidding the, the rear wheel there. I didn't think I was slowing it down that much, but you're actually skidding it. And that's exactly what it, it should be. And, and those people with ABS really have an advantage to become expert breakers, much better than people without the ABS. And when I'm teaching riders or training riders to really become experts at this, if they have no anti-lock brake, I have to start at the conservative end. So I have them come down, apply the brakes, I can see the load, and right at the very end of the stop, the last three feet, I just have them really add some extra squeeze to feel that, you know, that, that tire come in. And we, if we get a one-foot skid, we're good. If we don't, then we know we're still soft on, on application. And once we find the threshold, that point where they're going, gosh, if I give just an extra pound of pressure, it slides, and a pound less, it's good. When they get to that point, we're fine, but now we have to back it up slowly, slowly, slowly to the point where they're now able to find that threshold at the initial application point. But the problem is, even though they're hitting threshold, it takes so long to get there that their average deceleration rate is very poor. And so it takes a long time for those riders to develop that skill set. Riders with anti-lock brake get to do it from the other end. They can come down and just hammer the brake. And usually what I do is I just have them hammer the ABS, know what it feels like, and trust it. 
but now they also have the number to beat. Whatever that ABS just did, if you're not doing better than that, then you're not better than the computer. And now as they go down, they can break very hard. And I tell them, once you think you're right at that threshold, just where the ABS is going to start to engage, give it just a little more squeeze and see what happens. If the bike slows more, you weren't there. If the ABS engages, you were. And so you're using the ABS as a training tool, a little magic genie on the back of the bike to save you when, when you miscalculate. It's pretty incredible to think that, that even with ABS, we can become better brakers. So you're saying the average way that people brake um, without being educated for this is they get on the brakes hard at first. And then once they get the, the load transfer, they're not increasing the brakes where they should. That's the mistake. Are there any other areas? And that's kind of the primary. And, and, you know, to give you another idea, when I'm observing this, what I can see is I can see a very quick compression of the front end. But as they come down, I never see any additional compression towards the end of the stop, which tells me that they're holding kind of steady on the pressure. They're, they've hit their comfort threshold and they're just not willing to give any more pressure. And likely there is more suspension travel there. This, the bikes are not bottoming out, are they, when you, you get on the brakes hard? No, they shouldn't be bottoming out at all uh, or else we've got other issues. And that's a whole different topic when we start talking about suspension. But yeah, they should not yeah. be bottoming out. Yeah, because we, we just talked with uh, Warren Milner there a couple of episodes ago and we talked about changing suspension components to make the bike, quote unquote, handle better. And one of the things people often do is stiffen up the front end because they think it dives so much. But diving is part of what's making the braking work. Especially on these really long, long travel suspension bikes and so when you when we're talking about suspension, and I definitely want to go back and listen to that. I, I missed that episode, so I'm going to go back and listen to that. But when a lot of riders come into the adventure world, they come from the street. And the, the amount of travel on a street bike is three to five inches, depending on whether you're a sport bike or a cruiser. So if you're settling down at 30% sag or, or you have 70% compression, it's a pretty small amount of travel as a rider. And then all of a sudden you get on these, you know, an 800 GS with nine and a half inches and your travel, your dive is more than the entire travel of that former motorcycle. And you, and they expect it to feel like that other street bike that travel is extremely important. And as you put it, that's also what allows a greater load transfer on these adventure bikes that allow us to get more onto the front tires because we get that dive. Now, I wonder, is that something that throws people off, especially if you're just getting into adventure riding or dual sport bikes, that suspension travel, you get on the brakes and it dives a lot in the front and that can be unnerving. And I think a lot of people make it worse by putting, everybody assumes they need stiffer springs. Well, the more stiff the suspension, the less compliant it is to changes. And the same is true when you're braking, even though you're loaded heavily, that front suspension is still there. It's still working to, to follow the ground and to keep in contact. And when you have rebound and compression settings that are too high or springs that are too stiff, it's not as compliant. It's not able to do that. And in general, suspension will feel looser than what we think is ideal to get, um, you know, perfect traction. And Paul Thede at, at Race Tech did a bunch of testing with that. And, and uh, Lee Parks had helped write up a book, a uh, suspension, you know, Bible. And they did a lot of testing on how much maximum traction is compared to what the suspension settings were. And they found very consistently that where people thought it was perfect, that this thing, man, it handles like it's on rails they had already passed the maximum traction level, so they actually loosen up. You can see it in GP racers all the time when they're coming down the straightaways and you see these bikes wiggling. They look like fish coming down a, downstream and 
they're not rock solid. If you watch carefully, you can see these things wiggling all over the place. And if that was not maximum traction, those GP bikes and those super bikes wouldn't be set up that way. We're going to take a break for one minute and we're going to be right back with the exercise for you to improve your braking skills. Stay with us. When you need ultimate control navigating a tough off-road section with your large adventure bike, you need to stand. And when you do, you want the best under your feet. You want foot pegs that are designed impeccably, incredibly tough, and they give you traction, keeping your foot on the peg where it needs to be. You need to look at IMS Adventure Foot Pegs. IMS has been around since 1976, and they've got a complete line of Adventure Foot Pegs for your bike. These pegs are going to increase your control and your confidence while negotiating the tough stuff. It's what I'm riding on right now. Drop by their website, www.imsproducts.com. Their pegs have a lifetime warranty. They're made in the USA. www.imsproducts.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Okay, Brett, well, now comes the time where we get an exercise. What do you have for us that we can go out and try to improve our braking skills with? Well, since you don't have a radar gun and you don't have another person standing there, it won't be quite as accurate. But here's one way that people can at least get some idea of where they're going to land. So this is going to be a progressive um, exercise, you know, three different speeds, as long as they're comfortable doing this. And I'll give two numbers. And one will be what the bike should be capable of or near capable and what the average rider should be doing. So each of the riders, as they come down, they'll have some idea whether they're better or less than average and how close they are to the limits of the bike. Okay. So, and before we get into the numbers here, we're going to post this as well on a sheet in the show notes. So you can go to the show notes afterwards and pull up the sheet and you'll have all the details. So here's the important thing. Find a safe place with consistent pavement and some place where you're not going to be dealing with cars driving through or people yelling at you not to be on the property. Makes so sense. if you go to a parking lot or something, ask permission before you start going out there and then speeding across somebody's parking lot and doing braking. Um, let's, you know, let's keep a good image for motorcycling. We'll start there. So we're going to have a, a you know, a, a, an approach distance that allow you to get up to maybe 30 miles per hour. And then you'll need to have runoff so that if you, for your braking beyond that point. And for me, I'm going to say, you know, give yourself 75, 100 feet just so that you know that you're not going to run off into a fence or a curb or something like that. And do it progressively. So I'm going to recommend starting off at maybe around 20 miles per hour. And this is just a little faster than most of the training programs do their braking or up to. So 20 miles per hour, it's about 32 kilometers an hour. So 20 miles per hour, 32 kilometers an hour. Approach your braking area and set some, you know, set a couple of soda cans down or pop bottles or cones or a jacket or something so that you're always beginning your braking at the same point. Again, cheating doesn't help you. It's all for yourself. Nobody's watching. So get your speed stable early on. Don't accelerate all the way up to the point so that you're not doing some odd transfer or making errors. You want to be comfortable when you do this. So 32 kilometers an hour, 20 miles per hour, you approach. When the front tire reaches that braking point, whatever you establish, go ahead and stop in the shortest distance you can. And then measure from the front tire, front edge of your tire, the point of contact where you would hit a bumper all the way back to your, your point of braking. 
what you're looking to do is get this done in about four meters. So that's about 13 feet. That's a 1G stop. So that's going to be near the capability of, of the average motorcycle out there. They're going to be plus or minus just a little bit. Okay, so, so just to be clear, that's amazing stopping. If you can do it then, then you're, you're really maxing out. You're it. Yeah, that's it. You're, you're the man. You know, at that point, you know, or you get woman. to go and, uh, yeah, or you're the rider, you're the person, you're the right, you know, whatever's politically correct, that's what you are. Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but if you can stop in, in, you know, from 32 kilometers an hour, 20 miles per hour, and you can stop in four meters or 13 feet, you are, you're right there. That's where you need to be. If you're stopping at around 19 feet or about six meters, at that same speed, you're average. That's a 0.7. If you're beyond that, then you're less than average. You know, and that kind of gives you an idea. You know, and that's a good time to start practicing your skill set when you can consistently hit the same breaking point, whether it's average or better than average, but you're always hitting the same stop. Then you can pick up your speed. So add an extra five miles per hour or, or move up to about 40 kilometers an hour and then do the same drill again. And the next time you come down at 25 miles an hour, that's going to be around 20 feet. And that's going to be that. That's it. That's that's what the bike can do. Now, around 30 feet is about what the average rider does. And and again, for uh, kilometers, for your your listeners up there in Canada and, and in the rest of the world, <laughs> that's around six meters. Uh, and that's going to be your 1G stop. And around nine meters is going to be your average rider stop. When you get that down and you're getting it every time, you're relaxed, you're comfortable, there's no drama going on, and you're hitting the same point every time, then go ahead and pick it up again. And I'm not going to tell anybody to go over 30 miles an hour without somebody there watching them, but move it up to about 48 kilometers an hour, 30 miles an hour. That's a that's an average side road speed, residential areas for the most part. And when you come down at 30 miles an hour, if you're if you're the person, if you are an expert, if you have met the capability of the bike, it's going to be about 30 feet. That's about nine, uh, nine meters. And if you're average, it's going to be about 43 feet. That's about 13 meters. And so just by at least having those numbers to work with, you're able to go out as a rider and have some idea of what your capability is. And, and here's the, the message I want to leave, leave people thinking about. It's not as important that you can do a 1G stop as it is to understand how you compare to the other vehicles that can. Because you can't make good decisions as following distance and everything else if you don't know where you stand. And that's that's the real goal here. It's to educate yourself to understand where you stand in traffic and what your performance capabilities are in traffic. To be an expert is always a great goal, but that's not the thing that's going to truly save your life. Understanding and making good choices are what's going to save your life. Okay, so if if the average rider is stopping at 0.7 Gs and the bike can stop as much as up to 1 G and maybe even a trained rider could get it closer to that, if we're traveling along at, say, 80 mile an hour, which is roughly, I don't know, 128, 130 kilometers an hour, what are we talking about in real world distance? Oh, that's a long ways. We're talking like uh, 300 feet. That's 91 meters. And that's what the average experienced trained rider would stop in. Um, that's a long ways. And if you if you take that and you compare it against what the bike can do, it, it's still going to take 200 feet or, or roughly 61 meters of distance to stop that bike. And that's if you know everything. And the difference between that's that's more than two school buses. That's a 
that's a long distance. That's between the average experienced guy, the guy that's gotten training and what the bike can do. That's incredible. So, so that's not just the, like, like just to be very clear here to maybe even to repeat this, because I think it's really incredible. That's what you can improve your braking on your bike. And we're talking huge numbers here, two school bus lengths. I mean, that'll be the difference of an accident or just a, a stop. That, that can be the difference between life and death. I mean, that, yeah, that's, that's, that's what it really boils down to. There's, there's a significant speed still going on there. And it's, uh, you know, I'm just amazed that the, that the training programs that are available uh, in North America are not a lot more aggressive in educating riders on this, on this topic and training riders on this topic. Uh, although I think I'm hoping that as the, as future generations come into it with the electronic assistant, uh, electronic assist, you know, the ABS and the traction controls that these riders will be much more confident, you know, being into the brakes and some of the old timers that maybe remember, you know, sliding tires and may put a little, you know, fear into them as, as riders. Well, there it is. We have our assignment. We can go off and improve our brake skill, braking skills. And uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it goes without saying, I know you said already, and, and I'm not trying to pitch it here, but uh, I'm just saying, I think it, if you have the opportunity, take a, take a course for this, for sure. Um, because having somebody there that already knows how to measure everything up and, and figure everything out like you do in your courses would be obviously far better than what the average rider is going to go out and do. But at least we have something to go and try on our own and, and maybe see if we can improve our braking skills a little bit. Brett, thank you very much. All great information as usual. It was fun to play today and looking forward to next time. I've been speaking with Brett Tax, one of the instructors from PSSOR, and you can find out more by visiting their website, www.pssor.com. And by the way, the chart that he talked about there, that will be in our show notes. So just drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. Check out the show notes for this episode, and you'll be able to download that chart. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The Motobreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for 
speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Now, if you'd like to help the show out, you like what we're doing here, you find some value in it, consider dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. We would love if you click on the support button and have a look at what we have there to offer. We've signed up for Patreon, so if you're interested, you could give monthly donations, any amount, your choice, and we have different rewards offered there on the site. So drop by our website and have a look. Meanwhile, though, of course, you can listen to all of our episodes for free. And don't forget our other show, ARR Raw. It's also available on our website. And both shows are available anywhere where you download podcasts. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. Hi, I'm Carl Parker from Edie Moto Magazine, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>